0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
1: Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Houndsome. And I'm Megan Lee. When you look, communities are everywhere. They can be the people where you live. They can be the people you live with. The people who share the same interest as you. The people you volunteer with. They can be as small as a household or as big as a city. Communities, societies, political and religious beliefs all intertwine so that sometimes it's impossible to see where one starts and the other ends. This is probably why they provide such fertile imaginative ground for writers. From the utopian ideals of Star Trek to the whole other level of fucked upness of Black Spring, they influence the characters that we grow to know and love. A community can transform everyday characters into villains or heroes, can lift them up or suck them down. Do writers shape communities to fit their characters, or do they build up the community first and then decide what kind of people will populate it? With us today to talk about how authors employ communities in their writing are Caroline Hardacre and Gabriella Houston. Thank you for joining us, ladies. Would you like to introduce yourselves and tell our listeners a little bit about your books?
2: Sure. (laughs) So I'm Caroline Hardacre. I'm a poet and novelist from Newcastle upon Tyne in the UK. I write all sorts of things generally. So I've got a couple of poetry collections which are a bit fantasy based, a bit historical based, a bit sci-fi based. And my debut novel comes out in April, so April 13th. It's called Composite Creatures and it's a... ooh... It's hard to describe, but it's sort of described as a, a dark, dystopian, science fiction, speculative novel. It's a bit of a twisty tale that has a bit of horror in it too, but it's surprising people. It's really interesting to read the reviews already. But yeah, that's me.
3: That's me. <laughs> I'm Gabriela Houston. I'm um, a London-based writer. I'm Polish, but I have lived in the UK my entire adult life. My debut novel The Second Bell is coming out from Angry Robot. Well, it has come out from Angry Robot already. Yeah, I'm, I'm used to saying it's coming out soon. No, it's come out, it's come out already last week. It's all available. It's a Slavic folklore inspired fantasy. It's a self-contained intimate novel about Astriga and her mother and uh how communities um, reject those who are different.
0: So we are here to talk about communities. What are some of your favourite stories about seismic communal change and evolution, and are there any major themes you notice they have in common?
3: So uh, for me, um, I was thinking about and there, there are definitely two main different forms of sort of seismic changes that I can think of in uh, novels. And they either come from uh, rules and laws that are oppressive and bring great misery, like in uh, Cinderella is Dead by Kaylin Bayron, or in the forms of scientific industrial sort of progress, however, is understood, like in Terry Pratchett's uh, in Industrial Revolution uh, novels, like Raising Steam, Going Postal, Making Money. So for me, commonality is wh- when it comes to the societies that are oppressive, then it's about, the the change is about sort of ideologically bringing greater equality to the community and sort of increase net communal happiness in in one way or another. And when it comes to the sort of huge changes in terms of uh, industrial progress, it tends to be more about who is, who are the winners and who are the losers in, in that kind of a change.
2: Actually, I would say that I I really agree with that. And my thinking around it was that a lot of the examples I could think of always seem to end in there being a, a victor and a loser. And there always seems to be one particular group that wins by taking advantage of the other group. So I was sort of thinking about because it's it's in the of cultural present. Um, The Handmaid's Tale is an example of the fact that it looks like one solid community, as in Gilead, but it's strictly based on certain uh, people in certain roles, like the commanders, the commander's wives, being able to live from the the Marthas and um, the handmaids, so taking advantage of those. And even going back further in time, I tend to think the best example of it is The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. It's a long time since I've read it, but I remember reading it when I was a teenager and really being struck by the it's the Morlocks and the Eloi, isn't it? And how you think they're two completely different societies working one way, but then you kind of really find out later that one is farming the other and kind of living off it. So for me, the A lot of these science fiction stories seem to underneath it all have a an undercurrent of people taking advantage of people, which is kind of horrible in a way. I think that's just humanity, isn't it? Yeah, it is just humanity. And yeah, I was thinking about like my novel, Composite Creatures, and I was thinking, is that true in that? And then I thought, actually it is, because even though it's it's kind of based around uh, Eastern Grove being this um, corporate private healthcare organization, for want of a better description. That's the kind of set strict uh, community in the novel. From the outside, it doesn't seem to take advantage of people, but it it kind of does. It works by you're paying for itself by the people who are members and can afford it, but also taking money from society, to be honest, and privatization. So, I, th- I th- It just seems to be a kind of horrible truth, that science fiction. We seem to be going in the direction of thinking that people are going to to take advantage of everyone, which is kind of horrible. But there you go.
0: (laughs) It's interesting when you said that, because what came to mind immediately was Soylent Green, which is kind of the... Ultimate, <laughs> really taking advantage of people for other people's gain. Um,
2: yes. Oh, horrible!
4: <laughs> you like, what isn't it in the Matrix as well? I mean, like yes. the, the old uh, fed intravenously to the young.
2: <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Mm. Yeah, it's like the perfect visual demonstration when you see them all in those pods, just being sort of fed. The babies fed the old. Oh no, it's not good. <laughs> it's so.
4: Cool that you mentioned the Eloy on the Morlocks. So that was a really that was so well observed. Like the <laughs> the fact that they have this, um you know that they do seem really separate but then of course i the only reason i know the time machine as well as i do is because so many years ago i studied it at university and ah. i really loved this we were talking about the concept of reverse colonialism um and it was and a lot of the stuff that came into that was kind of social and class structures and how the, there's this the idea posited in the time machine that um you know once you once humanity achieves the pinnacle of existence where we simply cannot go any further down the road of eliminating disease. And um, where do you go from there? And, and HG Wells posits that there is nowhere to go. You can only decline. And mm-hmm. so the, the, the Eloi are these, you know, kind of elfin, beautiful yeah, creatures. Yeah. But they're, they're like they have the minds of children because mm-hmm. there's nothing else to challenge them. And, that, you know, and of course the warlocks are feeding off them. and And this is the they're the result of, of class um, kind of warfare is, is, is pushing the working classes into, into the mines effectively. Um, And they become an entirely different race of people to prey on the bourgeois classes who no longer have anything to, (laughs) to to like propel them forward. It's just the most dystopian and
2: incredible vision. Totally. I think I studied it at A-level, I think, which was a long time ago, believe me. And it's really stuck in my head since then. Like, it really shocked me. I think it was one of those stories where I thought, hmm, I like sci-fi. <laughs> I really do.
4: It, it's yeah. one of those stories that when you studied it, more of it comes out. You know, when you just read it, you, it's it's great, but it doesn't have that kind of punch. It's when you actually go to these lectures and seminars and they, they talk about, they they draw the subjects out and you're like, that is a great, it's saying something so important about. Totally. Elias, and, it's a really, sh-
2: and it's a really short book as well, from what I remember. So he really packs it in there. <laughs> There's a lot of truth in that tiny book, but yeah, I, I'd recommend it to anyone if they've not read it.
4: So going back to the idea, I know we were talking about Eloy and Morlocks and them being separate communities, but but actually communities, if you think about the word itself, um, communities are born of people being Geographically linked, um, or they're linked through some kind of shared interest. But we were thinking, you know, does this basis in common ground um, make communities necessarily hostile to the idea of individualism?
2: I was thinking about this myself and I was thinking, kind of, what is a community made up of and what makes a member of a community useful? And from the outside of a community, looking in, it might be the case that we we think they're all so alike; they're all following the same rules, they're doing the same, they're following the same dogma. But what makes a community powerful is that all of the members have an individual purpose. And um, I mean, I use this in in composite creatures in that. The community in that is the Eastern Road community, where you can only really get in if you can afford it, but also there's there's some kind of mysterious criteria that means you can you can be a member. And even the, the members themselves don't quite understand what it is. But one thing that they do is try to harness individuality for the benefit of the greater community. So whether you have a particular skill in an art or a science. It's part of what they do to try and emphasize that, use it for the good of Eastern Grove, sort of abuse it, I guess, and make them greater. So I wouldn't say there's an enemy of individualism. I think they try to harness this for the greater benefit of them. So it's almost like taking advantage. But I don't know what you think. What do you think, Gabriella? Do you think that's
3: true? I think that individualism really is a luxury of Prosperous commun- communities, and it only seems to really crop up as an issue in uh, societies where resources are plentiful. And maybe, you know, so like it's really interesting how you're saying that um, that sort of elite medical community. Uh, wants to harness individual talents to uh, individuals' talents to kind of improve a community as a whole. But they are the kind of elite, aren't they? Whereas I was thinking that, you know, we're... So in my book, you know, the resources are scarce in in both communities we see. And so individuality is seen as something that can divide and hurt the community. And, and, and in some ways, you know, we see the example of that, being potentially true. There's a character called Dran who primarily looks out for his own interests and for what he wants. It's not even interests for his for his wants, as it were. And we see how it can erode the community in, in big and small ways. But I think that generally the small, smaller and the closer knit the community, the less individualism it tolerates. But then again, you know, on the opposite side of it, changes in progress can and usually do stem from an individual's drive. I there, there is, I think it's a constant struggle. So I don't think that they're necessarily hostile to each other. It's more that there's a constant struggle of figuring out exactly where the balance lies and where an individual's sort of pursuits and in where individualism can hurt the community as a whole, so it's sort of utilitarian mindset yeah. versus individuals.
2: Mindset. Yeah, I suppose it's it's whether that that quality is seen as a danger. I guess it's whether it could lead to rebelliousness or revolting against what the big community stands for. I suppose
3: that is a, a point of view where it's where the society is quite sort of constricting and where it's where the rules are very strict and the 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 personal freedoms are very limited i think there is some truth to like in a small community where everybody has to rely on each other someone who goes off on their own and cannot be a part of the whole and cannot contribute in a way that they're expected to contribute that can hurt everybody so I think it really depends on what, what kind of society we're talking about. I mean, in, in, in sci-fi in general, we tend to see individuals as those kind of glorified ma- mavericks more often than not. Because I, and I think that it, to an extent, stems from a sci-fi and fantasy genres being traditionally quite Eurocentric. And Europe is historically sort of in love with individualism. So I think it stems from that cultural approach where we see individuality as a sort of potential for progress. But I think it's it's interesting to sometimes explore that, well, extreme individuality can actually hurt the community as a, as a whole as well. So I think there's a balance and I think it is about balance in, in many Ooh. cases.
0: I was thinking about how, not to get, depressing and and serious on on us but (laughs) in in the current situation of the world where we have a lot of communities that develop around ideology and this can be something serious like politics or it can be something just like we have a community of science fiction and fantasy lovers i have found that unfortunately in a lot of these kinds of groups it is quite intolerant to people who have a different perspective. So I think it's calmed down a little bit, but when I sort of really first got into sci-fi fandom, I was both a Star Trek fan and a Star Wars fan. And I was told that this was incorrect, that I could not possibly (laughs) be both of those things. And it was just, you know, that, that, they were the rules and it was just horrendous and they didn't want me, you know, I wasn't accepted because I was these things. And It was, I had the same thing when I discovered the Beatles, but at around the same time I discovered the Rolling Stones and then I was told, oh, you can't like both
3: the Stones and the Beatles. And I was like, well, okay, I don't know who made this arbitrary rule, but. That is quite obvious nonsense, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it's just, you, you can't have a good comeback to it because it's just so dumb that it's just almost impossible to have a good comeback to it. But in, in a way that is, that, that comes from sort of extreme prosperity. Those kind of ridiculous levels of rules that have nothing to do with the good of a whole or, or, or any common goals and have more to do with sort of individuals prejudices. That can only happen in a society that is so prosperous that it has nothing better to do with its time than police people's TV show preferences.
2: Yeah, and I, I think on like a quite a simplistic level, I'm just imagining things where I I've been sort of similar on a fantasy level, and I've thought these things like like the Star Trek and Star Wars comparison. They're seen as perfect escapes for you, like mentally and emotionally to the degree where you want to believe it's almost real and in that sense you can't you can't believe in both because they work the two universes work according to different laws so it sort of defies logic you're sort of ruining one by accepting the other if you get my drift it's the same with I guess yeah. two fantasy worlds I have like a sort of a, a magical law system to them I'm just I was just imagining it in my head I was thinking of how much I love like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, when those were coming out at the same time. It's like, you can't love both. You can't believe in both. I was like, but I do. I love both of them. Uh, I, I, you know, I I think
3: it's perfectly reasonable to be able to hold two even contradictory things together in your mind at the same time. Because I, I, I don't know, that's humanity, isn't it? I mean, we do it all yeah. the time anyway, so... In, in in a world where sort of uh, real problems are less um, less serious, then we can start discriminating against people b- because of a TV show they they like, but um, <laughs> that's the I think that's the level of um, privilege. Uh, yeah, when when we're talking about individuality versus community in in fiction, it tends to be more about e- each individual. Within a community, in the community as a whole, everybody has something to lose, and it's it, the consequences tend to be sort of more, you know, quite serious in a way that the community as a whole might cease to exist, or, or there might be a rift, or individuals within it might lose their uh, chance of, of, you know, pursuit of happiness. You know, like uh, like in Caroline's novel. So,
4: what you were saying is really interesting about um, about privilege and and this idea of discrimination like because when we think about community we think about it a community is something that you'd feel like everybody is united in that community that A community community spirit we talk about you know a, a unification of purpose so what's so interesting about this is then hearing like megan talk about oh you can only like one or the other and there's this discrimination within a community it's almost like a human's predisposed to Slightly off topic about communities, but it's what's so interesting is that it's a community kind of raised question: Is that like, are we so predisposed to be discriminatory that even in a community where everyone has come together to, to celebrate a specific thing, like Star Wars, for example, or you know just science fiction in general, do we do rifts? Ha- they they just naturally form even in places where we've come together to celebrate something and to the point where someone creates an arbitrary rule about a will you simply cannot like that thing in a community that has come together specifically to celebrate that thing as it were i just think it's like it's so crazy
2: this this is this something what does this say about human nature (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It it does happen for sure. I can't even like intellectualize why, but it definitely happens. And it's almost like a territorialness, I guess. So when everybody's come together because they love this one thing, let's say it was Star Wars. I think it's part of human nature to want to own things and to be, in this case, maybe be the expert on something or be the the person that people would go to about that one area of Star Wars, and I don't know, or like I think we do want to own things. Possess- That's like a possessiveness about it. I think I think it's
3: a really good point that Caroline's made about people sort of maybe not having the drive to kind of not necessarily just to divide within the community, but there's this drive to kind of you want to own something and have complete control over. It. I would say it's. It's maybe like the this concept of like you want to be able to understand something fully. And then if something comes which is in opposition to your understanding of it. So if you, if you come into the community and you think, well, this is just a Star Trek community. Everybody here loves Star Trek. They don't love this other stuff. If someone comes in and says, you know what, well, I like both. Because why not? Why wouldn't I? It challenges their core belief challenges this idea they have and it sort of makes them feel oh I don't fully understand it I don't fully grasp it and that's that's this kind of encourages that sense of like you want to control not just what other people do within the community you want to control how they think because if they think differently to you that will force you to perhaps re-examine why you feel the way you do, and maybe you feel the way you do not because of something you have fought through properly yourself, but because other you kind of fell in with what, what other people told you to do, or anything else that makes you a bit uncomfortable. So I, I I think it's sort of wanting to wanting to feel like everything is black and white, and like you you understand the rules, and you're that you understand how things work that's that's a very powerful driver for people and 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 you see it all over you know it's just where when people react to someone disagreeing with them with aggression because they can't hold two things at the same time in their head because it sort of I don't know it challenges their belief of who they are Mm.
2: yeah and it's really interesting that you said the word love earlier like I love Star Wars um because it just just thinking out loud it just makes me think that's when I suppose rationale goes out the window when it is love in a lot of cases when people come together to celebrate this one thing it's not just an appreciation or like an intellectual fascination with something it is love and when it's love that's when you can become possessive and territorial and think yeah we all love this thing but they don't love it quite like I do (laughs) they don't understand it like I do and that's when you want to own it because you think actually it does belong to me I have this special relationship that nobody else could possibly share it's a (laughs) big teenage in a way isn't it it's like nobody gets me nobody can understand my relationship with this thing but yeah maybe it's a little bit of that too maybe maybe it's a I
3: I think I think you're right I think there's this personal sort of dimension to things where you know, the the way we react to books, uh, the way we react to, you know, TV series, it can be extremely personal. And I I don't always want to hear other people's opinions on the books I love, for example. like In fact, beyond reviews that make me actually go out and buy a book in the first place, I'm not interested in like strangers opinions on that book, because it's, by that time I have developed like a very personal relationship with a story. And if I really love it, then it might, uh, make me feel slightly upset if people are being horrible about it in one way or another, or because it's, it's sort of crossed that barrier into the personal It's then it becomes something you want to dis, you know, discuss with your friends maybe, but not, not sort of just have in the general public, in the mm-hmm. public eye. Of course, we are on a kind of literary podcast right now, but <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but yeah, it just if 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 you feel like it, kind of hurts something, but but you hold very close, or, or or you know challenges the way you you see the world, see yourself, you know. Then people can react and and do react with uh, aggression sometimes, where they feel like you know you you are challenging the way I see the world, and I don't like it.
1: It's interesting that you've been talking a lot about love of something, bringing people together and how you want to kind of share that. And that's certainly how we often talk about communities with a a sense of longing and wanting to be part of them. So if that's the case, and that's generally how people feel about communities, why do you think it is that protagonists in speculative fiction are so commonly framed as breaking away or being distinct from their communities? What is it about these kind of characters in communities that we really want to read about compared to normally when we want to be part of the community?
3: To, to an extent, it's uh, driven by the format of a novel. So, you know, stories need conflict. And I think, it, you know, that conflict can be individual or communal. I think conflict on a communal scale is less done because it's more difficult to portray, I think, in a convincing way when it's just community and no individuals. That would sound quite experimental in, in form if you're not focusing on any particular protagonist. But also... Some of it is the reader wanting to kind of self-insert into, into the protagonist's uh, space. So, you know, like I said before, like I, I think that, you know, in, in Europe, we definitely have this kind of very individualistic kind of outlook in many ways. And European cultures are very much in love with uh, individualism sort of historically and People like to sort of read about exceptional people. And when you you read a book and you sort of self-insert into the position, you sort of see the world through this protagonist's eyes. It can be quite a thrill to see maybe yourself as this person who isn't afraid to break the rules, who who challenges the status quo, even if in personal life we don't necessarily feel like we could do that.
2: Yeah, there's something quite aspirational about them, isn't there? When I was having to think about it, I was thinking it's quite hard to think of examples of science fiction novels or even fantasy where the communities are a positive thing. (laughs) Mostly they come across as a negative thing. They're a controlling power or a negative influence on society in some way. So thinking like Gilead in The Hammy's Tale again, or I was thinking about the world in um, The Phlebotomist, which is another angry robot novel from um, recent months and it's like what Gabriella was saying I think the reader likes to pour themselves into the protagonist's head and see the world through their eyes so quite often these protagonists are the ones who are, who are questioning the system they're uncovering the truth and there are eyes and they to an extent I suppose they see the, the horrors of these futuristic systems with modern present day eyes. So yeah I I think it's maybe that it's that they're much more relatable for us. I tried to think of some examples where the communities weren't bad or where we're seeing the novels through the eyes of someone who's really integrated into the system and I really struggle to think of one. I know um in my novel it, it's a little bit like that, but I couldn't think of any more examples. I don't know if anyone else could. I
1: always saw Star Trek as the, the best community, Star Trek Next Gen certainly, ah. as the one that was always brought together but still managed to maintain individualism. For me, I always mm. used to grow up thinking, God, that really is a wonderful community, whilst at the same time recognising that it would never be possible in real life because of all the <laughs> things you've said.
3: <laughs> well, maybe it would be because it's not hum- just humans making the rules there, are they? So, That's a fair point, yeah. It's uh, it's this idea that if only humanity had like teachers in a wider universe that could show us the way to be less shitty to each other, then, uh, <laughs> then th- everything would be better.
0: We've talked about how these protagonists tend to be separate from these communities. But in your books, you have protagonists that are set apart from society for physical reasons. In the second bell, they're set apart because they're seen as biologically inferior and dangerous. In composite creatures, it's because they are seen as genetically superior. But why did you both end up choosing to have some sort of physicality as being the differentiating factor?
3: When you say sort of in the second bell, protagonists are sort of seen as biologically inferior. I mean, I would say that the chugas are not necessarily seen as inferior so much as parallel to humanity. So they they stem from humanity, of course, because the babies are born within the community. With two hearts are born within a community, but they are seen as something completely separate and threatening, precisely because their powers would potentially render them above um, the reach of human laws. So. You, you know, if if somebody could access sort of the energy of the world around them, I mean, the people in the, in the Second bell don't quite understand how the sugar powers work because the whole point is to sort of not talk about it, not explore it, keep it under wraps so we never have to find out the sort of true extent of it. But they, they have an understanding that there is um, sort of an untapped power in there, and there is this fear that if someone c- can be so much more powerful than everyone else in the community, then the rules would no longer apply to them, and that that would create the kind of inequality that could be dangerous to everybody else, even if that person wasn't, in essence, sort of evil. And so, it's almost e- easier to to say that you know this physicality this physical difference is the easiest and sort of most immediate way to delineate a difference between us. And it's easier to say that you're too evil to to be a part of us than it is to, to say that you're potentially too powerful because the, the, the latter would be admitting to some kind of a fear, I think.
2: Yeah. I think in, in composite creatures as well, it's, there was kind of two two reasons why, I suppose, because one of the main themes in the novel from when I very first started writing it was I wanted to explore our relationship as humans with nature. And this is a world where nature is sort of dying. Um, uh, everything's polluted, there's chemicals seeping up from the ground and The sky is a bit of a funny colour and it's very smoggy. It's not an unrealistic future. It's just a a little distance ahead than what we are. And similarly, people are being struck down by something called the greying, which is kind of akin to cancer, really. It's popping up all over the place. And I wanted to explore what is a life worth in this world? So one of the things that the novel explores is longevity and one thing that the Eastern Grove organization helps people to do is to live longer but it's at a cost so I wanted to explore kind of is that what life is life more worth it when you can live longer and do more is it or is it what you do with the time that you have and actually the the genetic superiority element of it is kind of a myth so Nobody actually knows why they're chosen by um, Eastern Grove at all. I think the the people who join the members see themselves as genetically superior, but that's not necessarily the reason that they're chosen. And the people who aren't chosen see the members as genetically superior because there must be a reason why they were chosen and they weren't. So it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. But I do think that Seeing ourselves as physical bodies and how connected we are to a natural world, which is also dying, is something that's really interesting in future science fiction. Because ultimately, even though we sort of forget it, we are biological creatures ourselves. We're we're interlinked with the natural world. And once that starts dying, so will we. So that was kind of what I was aiming to explore and why um, physicality was such an important factor of the novel.
1: When we see constructed communities within genre fiction, they quite often feature dystopian elements such as strict rules, brainwashing, and unfairly distributed resources. I mean, I know we've obviously talked about Handmaid's Tale quite a bit, and your novels, both of them, also have something quite similar. So, why do you think writers are drawn so much to exploring dystopian ideas of community in particular?
2: When you look at the modern day, I feel like uh, the world is becoming far more commercial, uh, corporate, and this in my mind, seems to marry with a world where in the future we all need to be functional cogs in a system. I'm thinking visually, it's like Britslang's metropolis. So it's just a machine that we're all part of. And individuality and self-expression would be thrown out the window at this point. So you'd have to follow strict rules. Yeah, we live in a world where there's more and more systems every day, basically. I mean, there's a lot of basically in nature even you know there's a lot of rivers and streams you can't you can't even paddle down them with your little dinghy your canoe without getting a permit first there's not a lot of personal freedom and also to a degree through history i guess we've been culturally shaped by fear of these large what appear from the outside to be brainwashed communities basically I'm thinking like Nazi Germany during the war as well. It's it's just this, it's fear of a, a big community that we don't understand coming in and taking over everything. So, yeah, I, I, it's almost like history coming back to haunt us. I do believe that even as far in the future we can look, history repeats itself. So often, you know, there's a lot of science fiction which repeats from history
3: I, I think what Caroline said about sort of history, you know, dystopian fiction, sort of dip, um, dipping and, you know, and fantasy genre, sci fi genre dipping into history, I think is very true because, you know, in many ways, human societies, from vast, ma- maybe not all, vast majority of human societies throughout history are and have been dystopian, always. You know, so because otherwise we'd be living in a utopia
2: mm.
3: by definition. So, and the, there is a certain balance that many writers are drawn to when we're talking about kind of the catastrophic events that sort of happen within the novels that, that talk about dystopian, that have dystopian elements. Because you know, historically speaking, greater equality tends to arise in societies only during catastrophic events. Uh, which is obviously not something that we ever want. But when you look at sort of on, on large scale, um wars, revolutions, natural catastrophes, you know, huge disruptive forces in human history bring uh, greater equality. Like, you know, think the NHS, right? In, in the UK, it's, you know, one of the, if not the, best sort of public institution in in human history so this idea that you can guarantee dignity and um, health care to every single person living in the country it's it, it's quite utopian and it came from a time that was very dark in history and when when you have peacetime inequality tends to rise in societies the differences between you know the, the haves and have- nots tend to increase for the longer you have a period of economic and political stability, and then of course when rising inequality causes discontent, and then comes a breaking point at which changes can happen. And I think from psychological and sort of sociological point of view, that breaking point is very interesting, and it's something that writers can really explore. And especially in the, in the genres of sort of speculative fish, fiction, because speculative fiction gives the writers the opportunity to sort of dissect and explore those sort of very serious societal issues in a way that doesn't feel didactic, if you see what I mean. So mm-hmm. that readers can access it without the pre-assumed biases, which is a very appealing proposal because you have a ability to present a set of ideas which can be even accessed by people who wouldn't inter- even entertain them in real life so but this is this is fantasy or this is sci-fi fiction so they they feel like this context allows them to explore ideas that are uh, quite different to what they usually consider without feeling judged and i think that's a great um, sort of gift of sort of speculative genres, which is that it allows us to explore really big ideas in terms of the world, how the world around us works and what doesn't work in the world around us in a context that makes people feel safe exploring it.
0: I've noticed that a lot of dystopian fiction actually is about community. What really came to mind was Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, it very much looks at how, at what happens when society falls apart and then how people create different communities and how they form bonds when they lose their families or they lose those kind of, you know, air quotes, natural bonds that you grow up with. How do you then build a community in the, in the wake of something really awful happening? And I find that really interesting, and also I think it was you, Caroline, who mentioned the way that society generally is is getting more and more money focused where it's all about mm-hmm. businesses, corporations, and so on, which again in parable of the Sower, she has these communities which are basically company towns, and you know if you go and work there, yes, you get jobs, but then you only get paid in company money, which can only be used in that company, and then you can never end up leaving mm-hmm. because when you leave they are no longer protected you you have no none of the perks at all and it's very very hard also i was just thinking about how again sci-fi looking at just the different ways those communities are built and the way that one particular dystopian sort of you know the event the big seismic change that causes things to change how different the possible ways of approaching that or the possible outcomes are something like Le Guin and the dispossessed, you know, you've got the Mm. anarchists against the capitalists and the, it's just all, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I just think it's really (laughs) interesting that you have science fiction exploring the ways that communities are built and the different responses that you have and how people come together from very different Previous experiences to build something new.
2: Yeah, it's almost like if you take it to a very domestic level, like the, one of the communities in the the second bell, or like the examples you've just mentioned with the, you know, it's far more corporate. So you get paid in in their money. It's almost like a very twisted form of family, uh, and I guess it it comes down to kind of the human nature always wanted to be part of something and longing to belong somewhere. And even in a corporate setting, I suppose to be loved and appreciated. And the the horrible truth is that they're not really loved per se, but I suppose they're rewarded with pay or with position or a place. But ultimately, and I suppose this angle I'm coming from this angle because when I write anything, whether it's science fiction or fantasy or anything, I tend to try and do it from a really domestic, intimate perspective. So I never really see myself particularly as a hugely political writer. I think everything touches Everything touches in po- on politics, whether you know it does or not. Everything is politics. Yeah, everything is politics. But I tend to try and start from a very personal, homegrown a scarce societal perspective I'm, I'm far more interested initially in writing about you know memory and i don't want to say love but relationships and relationships where we convince ourselves are real when they're not actually what we think we are so yeah sort of emotional memory and, and self-justification for being part of these systems
3: why are you, why are you hesitant to use the word love? Cause I, I was thinking mm. about, you know, your, your, your book and obviously the little I know about it, uh, <laughs> cause I haven't gotten to, to read it yet, <laughs> but I was thinking that the need to human need to feel loved is just, it's such a powerful driver in every respect. You know, it's. Once you've uh, once once humans sort of satisfy the most basic sort of needs of, of you know safety and sort of physiological needs and and all that the the next one is you sort of want to belong. We we, we you know we we have I think we we've in us we all need have this need to belong. And I was um, I was thinking about this book, S- Silver Sparrows. I believe it's about two sisters whose father is a bigamist and only one of the sisters knows about the other. And it's, it's a wonderful book. It, is it really. Tyari Jones. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. It really explores how. We, one of the sort of main driving forces in, in, in life of a child and the adult is feeling like you're being loved and you're being prioritized in one way or another. And it's, that really feels like, you know, when, when you have, when you sort of tackle subjects of a sort of isolation and wanting to be kind of an individual versus belonging in a community, this, this sense of wanting to be loved as an individual it's it's just a very powerful force. So, I mean, mm. I wouldn't sort of shy away from from using it to describe because people, you know, people might, uh, of course, sometimes people feel, you know, hear the word love and they think instantly romantic love, but mm. wanting to belong, it and, and wanting to feel loved, it's, it's just a, such a powerful force, and it's it definitely feels like Caroline's book is is quite sort of has has that as as a running
2: theme. Yeah, I would say as well, one thing that I tried to explore and I, I was going to mention anyway, was that it's in terms of love, it's like a, almost like a parental love. So in a world where there's, there is big systems, whether that's, you know, now or in a speculative future, um, huge corporate systems where we don't have a lot of autonomy or control over the situations, we turn to authorities in these organizations or in these systems to care for us and to take us into the system and and for want of a better word to to love us and appreciate us and look after us there's probably there's probably really good parallels to our religion there as well Mm. um in terms of wanting to be cared for provided for and someone that you can turn to when you know the the chips are down and things are difficult And somewhere where you can believe where everything will be okay, and you don't have to act upon it yourself.
3: That's a really good parallel, and like especially when it comes to the unconditionality of 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 that kind of love. And I find you know sometimes when people have very when their main sort of driver is sort of need for stability, that concept of a sort of superior being who. Mm. Uh, loves you on a very individual level that loves us all on on communal level but loves you specifically in individually and will always love you and will always uh stand between you and harm is Mm. is just hugely hugely appealing
2: Mm. yeah it is
4: I think Caroline mentioned that you said it's, you were talking about corporations and it was being this twisted idea of family. But this is the reason why and these talk these thing about being made to feel welcome and loved. It's like the reason why we are prepared to put up with a lot of shit to be part of a community. It's like you know when we we were talking about well why why do protagonists leave their communities um, and what what why do why are communities such. Um, you know, why do they appear in so many dystopian uh, books and why are they so important? And it's this kind of really excellent, I think you kind of, we've just crystallized the reason why people struggle so hard to be part of a community and to, to put up with levels of discrimination that they shouldn't you know, nobody should be prepared to put up with as long as they can feel like they are loved and that they are part of Mm. something greater than themselves. And I think that was, I think you're right to to link that to something like religion.
1: Mm.
0: I think it's interesting as well, where earlier we were talking about not really thinking of any examples with sci-fi and fantasy and so on, where the protagonists were sort of already in, in the community and, and happy in the community, whereas instead we tend to find them more railing against the community. But I think listening to you talk about it, it it feels a bit like it's a matter of perspective because a lot of these stories are almost about found families where, yes, they might be railing against one community, but they're always on the lookout. They're They're trying to find another one, create a new one. And sorry, I mean, I I know I'm a broken record and always go back to Star Wars, but, you know, as I said, (laughs) I love Star Wars, so it happens. (laughs) The classic is Luke. And again, George Lucas was working off archetypes, so it makes sense. But you have Luke who doesn't feel like he fits in in his community on Tatooine. And so he's fighting against that, and he's going to try to find a new community. And he finds one, and he has a found family with Leia and and Han and Chewie, And, and that becomes a different kind of community and one where he feels he can belong. So a lot of these stories that are about kind of railing against community are also about wanting community and finding community and and building something really beautiful that they, they do feel like they fit into.
3: I think it's a very um, sort of interesting example in, in terms of – f- so the problem is that, you know, of course – societies, especially societies that have, you know, very strict rules, will always have people who are unhappy with those for for all kinds of reasons. And, you know, like you say, we always kind of, we want to belong in, in, in a community. And I think it's just this sort of moment where the individual sort of protagonist breaks away from the community it's always such a it has to be such a traumatic sort of moment because it would be in real life it's like as as sort of painful as um, belonging to a community is leaving it is also incredibly traumatic so it's building yourself a new community is all very well but it's also there's always like a balance that the protagonists have between they want to perhaps reform and change their community rather than just leaving it because you know if you live if you so, say you know as an example so you know if you lived in a small small community that felt that your way of life your you know the, the, the way the way you want to live is um, either sinful or incompatible with their values you know very very often the only way to sort of uh, find your individual happiness is to leave that community but it's not very easy because of course your whole family belongs to that community your neighbors your friends all all the people that you've sort of spent your life building those you know deep layered relationships with and your own sense of identity um, belongs to them so the first sort of human driver would be to try and change the way the community sort of perceives things. And I, I think it's very interesting in fiction when you can explore that, again, that breaking point. When does a protagonist feel that they are willing to risk things and, you know, risk being abandoned, risk being um, rejected by voicing their um, disagreement, that would be, like, first step, then by, you know, what can they do on an individual level? Can they do something on an individual level to actually change the way the community works? And if that fails, what other options are there? And all of that, that is trauma, and I think it's quite important to sort of emphasize that, that it's not... It's not just, oh, well, I'm I'm not super happy. I don't feel like I belong here, so I'm just going to go off and find myself, my my, my new family, my new people to, to sort of be around. I think there's always um, quite a lot of sort of unhappiness connected to, the, to that, and uh, stories tend to explore more of a kind of finding the new community aspect, whereas others are more interested in how you can reform the community you're already in.
2: Yeah. I mean, on a very like basic level, like I think a lot of the modern feel-good science fiction um, or things I've touched on science fiction in film and books are often about a group of misfits who aren't in a huge corporate system, but they've gone off and they've, they've found their own family. So, you know, we used the Star Wars example. I'm also thinking of Guardians of the Galaxy, or something like that, where they're just a, a a band of oddballs thrust together on a spaceship, but they become a team. They become their own sort of micro community where they all have individual roles to better the group. And we like that. We like reading about that because we we like the idea of growing up in our in our families that we we don't choose, and then growing up and leaving and finding our own family of friends so friends being the family that you can choose yourself and part of that is finding yourself and finding your people so whether you are finding them through like societies about things that you're interested in or just people that you meet along the way we all want to be able to go off and find our people um and that's just that's just mirrored across all genres not just science fiction i think yeah
1: We were talking here about found families and forming your own communities. So just to wrap us up this evening, I wondered if I could ask you a bit of a tangential question. You have both written and created your own communities with your own rules and your own society and the rules within it. Would you actually want to live in the societies that you've created? And if the answer is a resounding no, then what made you want to write about them?
2: Well, for me, the answer is definitely a resounding no. I definitely wouldn't. But I guess I chose to create this world where people do have a choice to join this sort of community because it's actually a legitimate thing that could happen in the future. It's kind of the way that the world is going in terms of healthcare being privatised. And well, in many countries, it it is privatised. And if you can't afford the right healthcare, then you, you go without, basically. And when I write anything, I try and do it from a very real standpoint. So I always want to write about things that people can actually imagine happening, because I think that's where, unfortunately, true horror lies, <laughs> um, when we can actually imagine something being real. But yeah, I, I don't think it would be a good world. I hope the world doesn't go in that direction, simply, not just because I don't wouldn't want to be part of it. For reasons you'll have to read in the book. Um, But I don't think I want anyone to have the choices that the people who join Eastern Grove have. I don't think people will make the right decisions in terms of the, the choices that they make. I don't think people will think about the consequences. And also having these sorts of choices just end up resulting in a really split society even more than we we have today so it gives some people the option to do things in order to live longer and whereas other people don't get the opportunity at all and then you get into a whole world of thinking how is that going to impact society when half the people can you know live till they're 150 say and everyone else just has to to die along with the trees and the birds and everything else so, no, it's definitely not. I'm far more <laughs> about equality, and I think we should all be treated as, as the same as we could be. So, definitely a no from me. But I don't know about you, Gabriella. What do you
3: think? Well, you know, there's certain aspects of um, the second bell that I would feel, you know, quite like I, I would definitely like to experience the kind of connection to the world and nature that the sugars get to experience with their powers. But as a society, um, it's a very, you know, all the characters in the book experience extreme hardships living in very unfavor- <laughs> unfavorable sort of circumstances. So I like my creature comfort. So I'm not sure I would uh, do so well in the Hay Mountains. Um,
4: You know, I just read the bit with a bear, not like, like she gets, she gets, she goes in the river and the bear eats her fucking supplies. I'm like,
3: fuck, (laughs) (laughs)
4: fucking bear. (laughs) Like, I totally with you on this. I was so angry. I was like, oh my God, she saved up. They saved up all that stuff. And then they had all the, all the nice cheeses and the meats and, and oh my God, the cheeses got wet. Like, this is my, sorry, but it's my worst nightmare. (laughs)
3: Uh, so m- my brother actually was uh hiking uh last year not, like two years ago now i think in yellowstone park or somewhere and and the bear basically took the entire container of food which was supposed no! to be in a bear proof thing and it was all supposed to be all like protected and it was just demolished and like taken away by the bear so li- he literally experienced it. I mean,
4: <laughs> oh
3: my god! You In your book? No, I had like I'd written that book way before then, but I just I thought it was quite funny. Um, <laughs> well, funny for me, not not for him I was necessarily. Say. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I find the reason I write, you know, the, the books I write is because I want to explore certain ideas about how I think. Uh, people would react, um, you know, when when put in, in in certain circumstances. So, you know, for the the second bell, I had this idea about how you would overcome your internal uh, sort of set of taboos and beliefs in order to protect your child, and um, what the breaking point is for all of us, where we actually willing to challenge their our core beliefs and our sort of which, which forms sort of the pillars of our identity you know in terms of sort of psychological makeup of a human mind we all have certain sort of core beliefs uh sort of the, the pillars that we consider unassailable and we consider to be very much a part of who we are that is somehow intrinsic to our soul almost you know so The longer we live, the more entrenched those beliefs become. And if you're faced with a situation where your beliefs don't correspond to what's happening in the world around you, there there will come a point where you will either um, sort of change those beliefs and what follows completely reassess the way you, you, you thought the world works, or you sort of go go down with it and sort of fall on your sword and just you know s- stick to your beliefs no matter what and you know suffer the consequences. So in in terms of the second bell, I felt like you know if you believed that your child might be evil and your whole sort of set of beliefs, everything everyone tells you, your family, your your friends tell you know they all tell you this is. You, your child isn't is evil, is a monster, and you're when you're faced with that child, This child is no longer an abstract, but is an actual baby in, in your arms. Are you willing to break away and completely sort of rethink how the world works, or uh, or will you just follow along with the rules and just abandon your child? And I I think that's but then in that way, that also tells you about who you are in, in, in a slightly different way. So I think, if you know, I created a community that is quite claustrophobic, um, sort of in spite of the sort of sweeping landscape in which they live. And because I wanted to explore those ideas of ex- sort of extremely strongly held beliefs that are challenged by, uh, by events and by love, but I would not want to necessarily exist in that world.
1: I'm sorry, but I don't think I'd want to live in either of your communities either. (laughs) But I have to say (laughs) that I did love reading about both of them. They're very different books, but with lots of themes running through them. And it was fabulous for you to join us this evening. So thank you so much to both Gabriella and Caroline for joining us and sharing their thoughts on communities. Thank you, ladies. Thank Thank
2: you for inviting us. Thank you. It's been great.
0: Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsam. Please help us spread the word, subscribe, and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.